to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. Back in 2014, when I lived in LA, my friend Jeff Warner took me to a, a concert of a band called We Were Promised Jetpacks at the El Ray. Well, before I went, I went onto their website and I saw my guest today was recording a special there for AXS. So I said to my wife, Joanne, I said, hey, we gotta go see this concert. So we went, and that was on March 18th, 2014, and my guest destroyed the house, and it was great to go to the concert with your peers, no little kids running around, just people who just were there to see the music, and I forgot how many wonderful songs Styx had, and my guest was quite the showman, and my guest is Dennis DeYoung. How you doing, Dennis? Thank you very much. Good night, everyone. Please pick up your your souvenir CDs as you leave the studio. I remember that show. That was a great show. I mean, it's funny. Is it is it different for you when you know you're when they're recording it and you recorded it for a CD? Does it change your performance because you think, well, it all has to be perfect because they're putting it on tape? Other than pooping in your pants, I think everything is normal. Um, here's what it is. Every musician knows this, and you know it. You know it too. When you press record, you perk up because you know this is something's happening. Particularly with this concert, which was going on to be made into a uh, double D, double uh, CD DVD package on Frontiers. Beautiful. I think it's on YouTube. It's got over a million two hundred thousand views. Did you were there that night? One million two hundred thousand people have viewed that concert. Who am I, Taylor Swifty? I don't even know what happened there. But nonetheless, for you, I didn't know you were there. If I'd have known you were there, I'd have tried harder. Well, there a you little go. bit, a little, not a lot. But you, here, here, yeah, you, it was a TV show. We walk in, okay. We, <clears throat> my son, who designed the lights and everything, we, we we drove that crap all the way across the country just for this TV show. So we set it up the day of the show, no advance, walk in, and we got to perform and be great. That's pressure. Anybody who says it isn't is a liar. So we went out there knowing it was going to be a TV show, and this is your, excuse me, pistachio show nuts, this is your chance to um, be great or not. And we did great. And that's why a million people went and they went like this. They went, I thought this guy was dead. But uh, nonetheless, um, it was a great night for us. We got so much out of access, allowing us to do that show because they they they, they made it possible that we could own the masters after period to air it, and then we own it. So it was made into this beautiful package by Frontiers Records. That's how he first came to be with Frontiers Records. But that was a really special night. And it was also an attempt to get on TV. It's not easy. I'm God was an old person. And we try to keep old people off TV. They remind us that we're going to die. Nobody needs that. So uh, we did it. And I'm glad you were there. Um, you know, those people were like, they like me. They didn't come because they had nothing better to do. They like me. So it's always good when you walk into a place and, and you're not going to spend 15 minutes proving yourself. 
Well, what was great about it was, you know, as I said, I've been listening to Sticks all my life. And it's like anything. As you get older, you listen to different music. You forget some songs. And your, your set list, I mean, it was just like a walk through memory lane for me. Because it was like hit after hit after hit after hit. You know, my prom theme, this song, you know, making out to someone. And that's what was great because you have accumulated such a body of work. It must make you very proud looking back at it and going... I have affected so many people's lives and memories. I am a magician. I didn't know it because music is magic. You know this. It does something to humans that no other art form is capable of doing. Not literature, not movies, nothing. You can hear a song, make the hair on the back of your neck stand, give you goosebumps, and immediately be transported to a particular time in your life where you where you can the sensory uh, perception is so vivid with certain songs into the memories of people's lives. I didn't know this when I was creating it. You know, I was just making shit up as I went along. That's all I was doing because, you know, <clears throat> you know what my goal was? I'll tell you. I wanted I wanted to kick Queen's ass. I wanted to be the Aerosmith. I would. I wasn't thinking about. Oh, you know. And I'd be talking to you. You old fart sitting here fifty, forty years later, and you telling me about the end of your prom for crazy. No, I was just trying to survive in the moment in the ring. Come on, you son of a bitches. That's what I was doing. Now, after all this time, and the internet, of course, I have the ability to hear from fans who are your age and possibly older. Although I'm not sure how. <laughs> they come up to me and they tell me these glorious stories about what the music that I was part of creating meant to them and they take these memories into their 50s, 60s and 70s. You think you think I'm a lucky guy? I'm a lucky guy. I didn't know I was doing that. And it was only after them telling me this both on Facebook, whatever the the social media stuff is and you know making comments on YouTube, I think to myself, "Wow, what a lucky guy." And um I I was part of I was part of a bunch of guys who made magic. They made ma- those songs are magic to people, not because I say so. Because once I write a song and I record it and we put it out there, that's not my song anymore. That's your song. I wrote it, but it's your experience that matters. Uh, not because all I do is this: I find some chords. This kids, you want to write a song? Pay attention. Here's an old guy telling you something. Don't ignore me. You find some chords you like. You stick some notes on them. And then you find some words and you put them on the notes. And you tell people your point of view about your life and the things you see around you in the world, hoping this, that you find yourself in my story. That's all it is. And when you find yourself in my story, then it becomes yours. Now, i got to ask you, I, I do want to talk about your career with Sticks, but I want to talk about your, your latest album, because I still call them albums. I'm 57. I will always call them an album. I won't say, you know, 26 East, Volume 2. Now, you say it's going to be your last recorded piece. How, how how can you... Isn't that hard for you to decide? Like, what if you get an inspiration a few years ago? I mean, what made you come to this point? I, I If I get an inspiration to write a song, that's different. I can always do that and put it on the internet. There's no, like, what is all this other stuff hanging on my neck? 11 songs, 12 songs. Hey, 
What do you want from me? It doesn't matter anymore. Nobody even cares about albums. They buy singles. Okay, fine. You made your choice. Who am I? Am I going to argue with the public? No. Um, if I I'll play concerts, I'm not going to make any more albums. I had I got tricked into this in the first place. Uh, Jim Peterick, my buddy, and uh, he lives three blocks from here in Chicago. He's a he's a March survivor guy. That dude, World Eye of the Tiger. Oh him. So he says, then come on, you're trying to talk me into uh, making a, a, a new album of music along with Serafino Pergino from Frontiers Records. Here's an offer. We want you to make a new album. I said to Serafino, why? Why would I do that? You stupid? You crazy? What's wrong with you? Have you looked at the music business? Nuts. So uh, Jim kept up and uh, he finally annoyed me to the point where <clears throat> we got together and started trying to write some songs. And we did. And before you knew it, we had eight songs. And then I continued to write on my own. When it was all said and done, we had 17 some odd songs. Half we wrote together. Half I wrote by myself. And I thought, okay. I called Serafino. I got songs. Because listen to me, all you musicians out there. If you don't have a good song to offer humanity, I mean a good song, go to barber college. Stop annoying us. Just because you got a device doesn't make you a musician. Doesn't make you anything. If you got a good song and a story to tell, I'm ready to listen. But if not, you know what I mean? Get, get yourself a trade. So we had all these songs, and Serafino says, I'll take them all. We'll make two volumes. I thought, I said to him, Is there extra lira involved? <laughs> He said, I'll double it. I said, double? I'm from the south side of Chicago, and I got poor math skills, but I understand double. So we made it into two, uh, into two volumes. I thank Jim Peterick now from the bottom of my heart for forcing me to do this record because I got an opportunity to say goodbye musically to all the people who have really made made my, my life, my wife and my kids so much easier by being fans. I got to say, Arrivederci, ciao, bambino. You know, that's that's what I got to say. The Italians were part of it. They helped me. And uh, I'm glad I did. Um, but, tr you know, when Jim and I sat down, I, I, was, I said, Jim, let's make a concept album. And here it is. Don't suck. That's the only concept. Don't suck. I was afraid... I wouldn't be able to write the songs that would be good enough. You see this stuff behind me? Oh, yeah. To, to make that theme, you should have stopped then. Okay? But just so you know, that's a green screen, and that's actually Sting's living room. But so don't get too excited with yourself. You. <laughs> you. Um, yeah. And we didn't suck. And people have said it. Uh, you know, Sticks was never a band, nor I, that had people writing for a living. You know, I didn't take, I don't have 50 reviews of Sticks music framed hanging on my wall anywhere. We could sell 30 million albums and sell out all our concerts, and still people would, you know, write things like, why, why can't they be punk rockers? Yeah, right here. So, um, the thing is, they've written such nice things about Volume 1 and Volume 2. I keep checking to make sure that that's that's my my album you're talking about. Apparently, it is. 
So now it's it's called 26 East, and that's where you your address where you grew up. What was your childhood like? What what drew you to this life of music? I know you were a music teacher for a while, but what drew you to music when you when you were what, like little Dennis DeYoung? What drew you to music? I was so cute. You have no idea. People just oh, that, oh, that 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 little child. We love him. Um, my mom. Why do you do what you do? Whose love are you trying to get? Moms or dads? You know who it is. I don't need to know. Don't tell your public. They'll think less of you. But for me, it's my mom, Italian mother, and the neighbor, Georgie. <clears throat> he would come over and play his accordion. 1953. I'm six. Let me turn this on. I can't. Never mind. I'd give you a tarantella, but I can't. Probably can't. So anyway, um... And I see my mother's, her eyes light up. Music, accordions, 53, popular. Second only to the piano. No electric guitars. Yet, annoying everyone. Trying to steal the show. Big show-offs. Screw them. So I'm playing the accordion. He's playing buttons flashing, bellows going. It sounds, it's just, you know, it's a thing, an accordion. So um, I see my mom. I see the smile on her face. I said, I like that accordion, too. I bet if I play that. So I asked for accordion lessons. Eh, that's what it is. So I play accordion. And then 1962, the Panazzo brothers, who lived across the street from me, uh, <clears throat> John played drums. Chuck played electric guitar. John only played two years. Chuck, like six months. And I've been playing the accordion for like almost eight years. I heard him one day. A practice, come on, bring your stuff over to my basement. We formed a band that day, just the three of us. That's the core of Sticks. Um, and then we're playing music to make our parents happy. Weddings, bar mitzvahs, you know what I mean? Whatever. Playing all the standards of, from our, our, our parents' standards, what they like, right? <clears throat> and um, and then, 19, like I say in the first song, Hello, Goodbye, on that album, right. 2 9 back. 64, the night Ed Sullivan had the Beatles. I watched it all from the front room door. I did. So they entered our lives and absolutely changed my life forever. I looked at that and I said, well, I know what I'm doing. And so the Panazzo brothers and I started playing Beatles songs and eventually got guitar players and started playing rock and roll music. Um, so the reason... That 26th East is on there. It's where it began, so shall it end. I started in that basement. That's where the whole thing began. And that's where it should end. And then with the Beatles on Hello Goodbye. And have you seen the album, Mart? I, 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 I listened to the album. Oh, okay. And it's got a picture of me in that Beatles. Meet the Beatles. It's just me. Uh, because that's where I always wanted, was always, always trying to sneak in that photo all my life. Um, and countless musicians of that era will tell you, and I'm sure they have, the same exact story or a story like it. They said, here's what rock bands can be. Here's what you can be. Here's what you can do. Floodgates opened. Now, how did you sit there, you know, as you guys were getting, getting bigger and getting work? How was your songwriting 
process? What did you, I mean, what were you putting into your songs? I know your first, first big hit was Lady, but before that, what kind of songs were you writing? Were you had to start off as a cover band and then slip an original? Because I always hear people say back then they only wanted cover bands and you have to slip in an original song and say, oh, this is a B-side from a Beatles, you know, album or whatever. How did you start, start putting your own music and getting that sound together? Let's face it. Before 64 and 5, <clears throat> nobody was playing original material. Not in this country. Everybody was a cover band where I grew up. Oh, there's a band playing the originals. You know what they do? What? They don't get hired. But So Styx was a cover band and a great one. That's all I was doing. I wasn't a writer. Didn't try to be a writer. Did not try to. And then we get a record deal based on our popularity in Chicago in imitating other bands. So time to write an album. Hey, I write a song. I play off sheet music. I'm an accordion player. I don't know. Guitar players always play by ear for the most part, you know, because that's their instrument. Not me. So um, write it down. I'll know what it is. So I, I have to write a song. First song I ever wrote, ever, and sang by myself on an album was Lady. Uh, when I wrote it, I went, that's okay. That sounds like a song. Right? You got it? I had co-written with J.Y. We and I had written songs but by myself <clears throat> no so I didn't know anything about it I just kind of um, stumbled my way through it and I didn't realize I was a good songwriter until 1975 because Lady was 72 it was supposed to be on the first album but the producer in his extreme ignorance uh, made us do four cover songs on the first album none of which we wanted to do Lady would have been on the first album. A couple of the songs that would end up on Sticks 2 would have been on the first album, but he was an idiot. So Lady gets on Sticks 2. They release the record. There's seven songs because we're a prog band, kind of a fake prog band. At, at our heart, we're an American rock and roll band who steals prog ideas from Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and whoever the hell there was there. Ah, take that. There's a synthesizer. Let's do that. So, um, I wrote five songs of the seven. It's a stiff. Are you listening? People, to, I thought I felt that was the opposite of Sally Fields. They hate me. They really hate me. Ladies release it's a stiff. Then two and a half years later, through a miracle, an accident, WLS in Chicago, the biggest AM station in, in, in America, starts playing Lady. Now, two and a half years in pop terms is 50 years. You know this. That happened two and a half years ago. Oh, right. Wasn't it the Ice Age? So, it becomes a big hit. Sticks two goes gold. I go, they like me. You know what that's like for somebody who doesn't know? Who is 50% absolute arrogant bluster and 50% insecure little mouse. You're validated. Lady, they like Lady. They like Sticks too. I said, I know what Sticks is. It's Sticks too. Only we do variations. We record Equinox. Boom! Equinox between the time between Man of Miracles and Equinox are recorded. It sounds like a leap of ten years. Why? Because I knew what what people would like about us, and we just did it. So, that's my story about Lady. I wouldn't be here today, except for some dumb, stupid luck. 
which is the best kind to have. Well, you know, it's funny. You know, you guys were putting out these albums, and then I always, I always used to joke around. I used to do stand-up comedy, and I, I had talked to the audience one time, and I said, you know, if you're, and I'm 57, so and this was how many years ago? I was like, if you're a certain age, if you didn't have Grand Illusion and Pieces of Eight, Kansas Left Overture and Dust in the Wind, and Steve Miller Book of Dreams, they've been. You were basically a nerd because they were the albums. Everybody had Grand Illusion. When you went in, first of all, explain the. You wrote the song Grand Illusion. Tell me, tell me where that came from. Getting a look at my mortgage payment. No, <clears throat> um, think about this. All those rock critics, jerk offs, who dismissed Styx's lyrics incomprehensible to me. We were not making the kind of music that they liked the sound of it. When, in 77, when the Grand Illusion was released, we already had Johnny Rock spitting on the audience, right? Making music that meant nothing except for some people in England because they were socialism. All right, good for them. Who cares? That's not music. That's the social movement. Different things. Always and forever. I go... I'm going to tell the audience what I know. We are an illusion. We are the grand, we, we create this grand illusion for you. I'm going to tell the audience. But we do it because we're entertaining you. Hopefully we're telling you things about our view on life that you don't know. But ultimately, I'm going to say it in this way. We're an illusion. This is capitalism. America is capitalism. We're capitalists. We hide behind behind the guise of whatever the hell art means. Please don't make my ass tired. Nobody knows. Uh, but I'm telling you, welcome to the Grand Illusion. Come on in and see what's happening. Pay the price. Get your tickets for the show. The stage is set. The band starts playing. Suddenly, your heart is pounding, wishing secretly you were a star. But don't be fooled by the radio. That's us. The TV or the magazine's advertisement. They'll show you photographs of how your life should be. They're just someone else's fantasies. It's not real. So if you think your life is complete confusion because you never win the game, remember it's a grand illusion. And deep inside, we're all the same. And so I'm saying, this is capitalism. We create an illusion in this music to get you to buy this stuff. Buy our concert tickets. Put your skinny little asses in those t-shirts back in the late 70s. <laughs> That's what we do. But I told them what we were doing. I said, but enjoy it for what it is. Because America spells competition. Join us in our blind ambition and get yourself a brand new motor car. But someday soon, we'll stop to ponder what on earth the spell we're under. We made the grade and still we wonder who the hell we are. True then truer now lyrics almost universally ignored is there any truth in what I just said to you yeah Deepens, we're all the same we're all humans you know if, I, if I'm up here in the good light and you're buying my album I'm you I'm going to encounter the same crappy things about life that you are I can't avoid them money will not protect me don't get me wrong. Money's great. You know what money does? I'll tell you what it does. It protects you against your own stupidity. You can buy your way out of being a jack wagon. 
oh, God, did I screw that up? Well, I got this money, I'll take it. You can't do that when you haven't got any. So that's the advantage and the, and, and the value of money. So, yeah, the Grand Illusion album. I told you. You didn't know, you didn't listen. You went, oh! You heard the big brand music and the lyrics were la, la, la. And this is where rock critics get it wrong because words are their lifeblood. They string sentences in the paragraphs that make sense to them. That's all they do, right? But the fact of the matter is people don't hear the lyrics the same way they hear the music. I'll go to any stick show or my show right now, but I'm sailing. They know, you know, the first two verses, first two, perfectly. And they go, I'm a daddy to the The lyrics, not, they don't settle the same way, but the melodies, they take to their death. Well, okay, what comes the other way, you know, because it's great and it's always nice. Okay, what was the impetus behind bringing a starship in? towards the end of the song. I mean, where did that come from? Because it's one of those songs, and you're right, we do listen, we listen to the melodies, and we listen to the songs. I'm someone who listens to words, too, because I enjoy that. I enjoy, you know, you enjoy words if you listen to music and if you love music. You can enjoy both parts. And with you, your song's going, and all of a sudden there's a starship. What? Where did that come from? James Young. <clears throat> he said to me, uh, because it goes, a gathering of angels, is what he said, appears above my head, saying to me, the song of hope, the same music. But if they're aliens, I said, <clears throat> aliens? You're in a band. You got, you want, okay, you want to make everybody happy? So I went back, and they weren't going to be aliens to me. You notice I didn't say, oh, everywhere you write, Dennis DeYoung and Alien. It's Starship. What had just come out? Star Trek. I was thinking... He wants it to be space. He's an aeronautical space engineer. Did you know that is a degree? I didn't know that. That's where his head's at. Mine's, no, mine's always on Earth. But I thought, okay, the starship meant sticks hadn't made it yet. I thought, we'll climb up on the starship. We're going to get there. We're going to get on that starship. Rock and roll star, not aliens. Jack is everywhere. Announcement to be made. Dennis does not care with about aliens unless they show up at my house and you know pay my phone bill then i like them. that's where that came from so you know you're in a band somebody says okay uh, we all want each other's approval in the band right so i said okay i'll do that what does it hurt but starship to me it's not aliens it's good to know. Now, that song, that album is huge, and now you're coming on the Pieces of Eight. Now, when you have a hit album, and you guys all share writing duties, you seem to write more of the music. How does that work with a band? Do egos get involved when you're sitting there going, well, I want this song, and someone goes, no, I want this song. And you can say, because the big hits, the biggest hits have been from you, so, you know, you're sort of the big swinging, you know. So you sit there, did it, did, was there any friction when it came to, like, Pieces of Eight, like writing the different songs? How did, how did you guys work that out? Never. Whatever you've heard has been a lie. Never. I was, after Equinox, I became the surrogate, not surrogate, the pseudo-leader. Every, everybody knew, you know, Dennis has got an idea. 
let's see what happens. We did Equinox, one of my favorite albums. That's Dennis. Eight songs. I'm an, I'm a writer or co-writer on seven. I sing all the songs. I'm singing lead on everything but one. I think, I thought I got an idea. All right. Never. We never argued about that. Never. One time. Not Mr. Roboto. We did Mr. Roboto. We had a blast recording. Tommy brought in the vocoder. Not me. Not Dennis. So we loved being together and making our music. All that horseshit that they've been feeding people for 20 years was a lie to cover up the simple fact that they were going to replace a sick band member. That's a bad story. But that's what happened. As the guy who was kind of like the one song is all I can remember. Maybe Tommy had a half a song. The songs on the Sticks albums were the songs that were written. There were no others. Listen again. Nobody had 20 great rock songs sitting on their desk that Dennis says, no, we don't want that. Bullshit. We had to compete with Foreigner. You got great rock songs? Put them right here on my desk. Nobody wrote them. Nobody wrote them. So every album, J.Y. wrote a song called Chain Me Down for Grand Illusion. That was going to be his sole contribution as a, <clears throat> a songwriter by himself. And we we said, I said, we all went like this. Eh. Eh. Nobody said nothing because that's not how we worked. But I would say to J.Y., J.Y., man, I know you've got something better. Get back in there and, you know, start right. And he, then he brought in the Miss America. And chained me down went on, on one of his solo albums because let's go listen to it. We said, this, this one or that one's up, honey. Yes. Okay. This one or that one. Uh, Miss America. Of course. It's, it's genius. Wonderful. Boom. He brings in Miss America. Grand Illusion is finished. It's finished. So we never... That one, one song, J.Y. and the manager, Derek Sutton, did not want on an album. The only one that somebody actually said no was Boat on the River by Tommy. And I heard it. He said, this is not for us. This is a little acoustic thing I wrote. I listened to it and I said, why is that not for us? I said, that's a great song. And it, really? Yeah. It's on there. Go check YouTube. Worldwide, the most views for any stick song is Boat on the River. Yet the manager and James Young didn't want it on there. I mean, you've got to look at things this simply. We want the best songs we have on the record. We never over-recorded. In other words, there aren't 20 tracks of sticks you know, sitting, I wouldn't allow it. No, I said. You want to know why? Why? When Nickel did that to us, the first record label started releasing all our old albums with crazy crap album covers on them and shifting any songs around they wanted. We had no, we had no say. I, I just said, we will never allow a record company to do that to us. If we don't collectively sit in the room and say, this is good enough, record those songs, 
the other ones in a closet. But nobody actually brought in songs that were rejected. It's impossible. I told you the ones. When we were doing Paradise Theater, Tommy, we started working on a song, and Tommy don't even remember if it had a name. And then one day he brought in too much time on my hands. And I went, yoo ah, And the fun never ends as long as I'm by. And I said, well, now, now you're living, brother. Now you've done something. Okay. And that got on there. So are you going to, how many fans you have? You got 20 listeners? Because I only have six myself. How many people listen to this thing? Um, between my, my internet radio shows and I think about 15,000. Tell those 15,000 people from the top of your No, Sticks didn't hold music back. The songs that were on the albums were the ones written in that small six-month period that we had to write songs for the next album. We made albums in 72, 73, 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, 79, 81, 83. Wow. We weren't the Eagles. We didn't make five. What was it like for you guys as your albums are getting bigger? Because I want to know, because you were, you, were you were the front man, you know, a lot of times, and you're going from bigger audiences to bigger audiences. I believe I saw you at the Spectrum in Philadelphia years ago, back when the Spectrum was open. What is it like for you feeding off the energy as you're getting bigger and bigger, and as you see your song catalog growing, that you know that when a band's newer, you know, of course, in the earliest, everyone was waiting for Lady. But then all of a sudden, you're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What was that like for you? Um, validation. You know, we struggled so long. Listen, sticks. 15,000 people, you're listening? Sticks, first album was in 72. Queen's first album was in 73. Kansas's first album was, what, 74? Five? We were before those bands. Don't tell me we copied anybody. That's horseshit. We never even heard those bands. We never heard Queen until 1975 when the, the Moe Shandon song hit the charts. Now, I liked them. Wasn't the like. But we never copied them. We were doing what we were doing. I see a white guy singing high, way too high, and playing loud and fast, and that's what we were doing. Somebody else decided to do that? Fantastic. So it was validation that I knew if Lady was a hit in 1972 when it should have been, the whole trajectory of how we we would be perceived would have been different. You have to have some luck in life. That's it. Timing is everything. Now, you're... What, like I'm settling scores? What's that? Do I sound like I'm settling scores? No, you sound like you're proud of your work. Damn right. And so are the people who bought those albums. And you too. Oh, I, love, you I love sticks. Now, I want you to tell me, tell me about Kilroy Was Here. Where did that all come from? Um, I was at the YMCA one night uh, on the uh, on the handball courts, and this guy beamed me right in the head, and I lost my mind. No, um, we've been attacked in 1981 because of a song called "Snow Blind" by these two fundamentalist priests. Priests? They weren't priests. They were fundamentalist preachers. I think they got their degree at the University of what's now uh, <clears throat> Burning Records. 1981, they're burning records. Had they ever seen a history book? Have we ever seen this movie before, Jesus? So they said snow blind. We were, Sticks was backward masking satanic messages. 
they just looked at the name Sticks. Not that we just had a hit called Babe. These are Satan worshipers. Best of times. Oh, I see. You play the record backwards. It says Satan moves in our in our voices. That's what they accused him. I was on Nightline. I was on Donahue. I did a bunch of stuff asking me about censorship and music. When I said, well, it's a bad thing, you know. Um, and then when I was trying to do the next album, I started thinking about censorship. I wrote this big story where rock music is, sent, is, is, is completely, it's banned because of an economic depression. United States, this big shot, bloviating, big mouth guy who goes under the name of Dr. Everett Righteous, who owns his own cable network, gets on nightly bloviating his views on rock and roll is the reason for our economic decline. There it is. That's what he says. <clears throat> and, you know, when people, you know, when you can define the other, you know what your problem is, buddy? Too many hats. If you get rid of some of those hats, you'll be about, see what I'm saying? We're just going to define you that a guy with too many hats or the guy that's that color, the guy that thinks that. Define the other and say to them, that is the reason you have problems. If this guy didn't have, if he had more hats, he could spend more money on the poor. You see what I'm saying? How, you can make up any story you want. That's who Edward Righteous was. So this guy gets, he convinced Congress, ban rock concerts. And I was going to take the idea of technology, which in Japan was running, you know what, the, uh, Japan was cleaning our clock in the early 80s with technology. I took the idea of technology and censorship, put them in a story in the future where rock music is banned. What's a Roboto? Mr. Roboto, what's the Japanese word for robot? Roboto. We had just come back from Japan. Domarigato. Domarigato. So I, I took Roboto and I made him these robots, imaginary, to guard the prison where rock stars weren't kept. <laughs> that was the story. And we stickered our album to say the majority of musical morality, which was the Dr. Righteous's group, the majority for musical morality, the MMM. We're going to warn you about what the contents of this uh, album were. It's two and a half years before the PMRC. And we did it. And Mr. Roboto, the single, never intended, never written to be a single. I said, it's not a single. My wife said, if it, it's a hit record, my best friend said, it's a hit record. Are you out of your mind? I said, when I'm yelling, Kilroy, how can that be a hit record? How's anybody going to know what the hell that means? Unless you see the story. Doesn't matter. It's a hit record. Don't know what he got. And I done. Okay. Record company says, we're going first with that. They did. But the number three was a million seller. But there was a portion of the sticks faithful who like pieces of hate and grand illusion, like you, who heard Mr. Roboto, one song, and decided, our fans fickle, decided, oh, they gave us all this music I like. Some of them said, oh, what have they done? I said, settle down. Settle down. This is the story. So, you guys were having such a good career. Why did you disband? We didn't. Tommy Shaw quit. Again, dispel this lie. We did not disband. We took a hiatus. Tommy quit on the stage of the Capitol Center in Washington. 
to pursue a solo career, something he had, he had been planning the whole year with his solo career whisperer, his best friend. And he told us, we, the four of us went, what? 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 One of the biggest bands, arguably, in the world. He's going to go and pursue a solo career. Off he goes. The four of us are standing there, holding our widgets. And J.Y., John, and Chuck said to me, they were so mad, let's replace him right now and move forward. I went, what? What? We're going we're gonna to replace Tommy Shaw in sticks? I thought, can I get you guys a mirror? So you can look into it and face reality? What? I said, let him go. Let him make his solo album. He'll come back. Boom. That was my belief. Because I know who Tommy was to the audience. You'd have to be blind and deaf not to understand it. So I said, no, we didn't break up. I said, nope, not, not for now. Well, let's wait for Tommy. Did we make albums? Did we make any more tours? No, I didn't want to. I wanted Tommy in the band. I thought it was important. Was that hurtful for you when he left? I mean, it's like anything, you know, he wanted to go to a solo career, but you're right. You were such a big band. As someone who started the band, you, is that hurtful? Was that hurtful to you? Did you sit there and go, you know, I'm sure you wanted him to do well because, you know, you're a good person, but did it hurt a little bit? No, I didn't want him to do well. Why would I want that? I wanted him in sticks. Why would I want that? I don't want him to do well. I want him to do well when I'm standing next to him. This is the point. You got it? We're a group. I didn't go out on my own. Dennis DeYoung, look at me. I was in a band. I wanted to be in the goddamn Beatles. I want to be in a band. So, he was, he has admitted that he was under the spell of cocaine and champagne. It's it's an ugly, ugly thing. Um, and I wasn't fully aware of the depth of it all when it happened. So was I, I was just like, gee, I was just so exhausted, right? You, all, I told you how many albums we made on my tours, all the success we had. I thought, okay, <clears throat> Tommy, do your thing that's what you need um, but he, he made three solo albums so time passed and because he went and made a solo album I said okay I, I checked my contract A&M had the right of first refusal on any solo album I ever did as a key man right key man clause when the, there's guys in the band the key man clause was given to me and Tommy and no one else I guess they knew something too didn't they I think so. So I exercised my option. I made Desert Moon. But Desert Moon should have been a stick song. It would have been on the next album. But Tommy was out chasing, chasing his dream. Was it hard for you to, when you recorded that solo album, to play with different musicians? Because, once again, you were a band. You wanted to be a Beatle. Now all of a sudden it's like, 
the guys aren't all there. Was it easy for you to record solo or was it a little bit of a tough process for you? The hardest thing is you got to write eight songs yourself. <clears throat> you got you got to fill up an album. Um, the process is always the same. But the, the thought that you could go, hey, guys, you know your whole life. You know, guys, we were friends. Forget that horseshit that's been that's been sold. Um, you want that? The Panazos, I'd been, we'd been together when that happened since '62. It was almost twenty years then. Uh, you can't replace that with hired guns. It's something you can't get. You forge ahead, do the best you can, and I, that's what all he did. The one thing I, I regret is that. Um, um, I didn't just start doing sticks music. I tried to recreate myself on those solo albums by not doing anything sticks would do because I thought that, you know, I was holding that for sticks. So you listen to my solo albums are softer. They're more, they're more ballad driven, more poppy <clears throat> because I knew if I was going to do that thing sticks did, I couldn't very well re- replace it with death metal. That's not in me. So that's what I did. I didn't want to be sticks because I was saving it. Now, you also, how did you meet Glenn Burtnick? Jay White did that. That was all him. He was the only guy in the band that I didn't personally hire. I hired, after John Chuck and I had formed a band, Every player that ever came after that, I personally said yes, no to every one of them. That guy, he can play guitar, J.Y. Best guitar player I ever saw in my life in 1968 when I saw him. Jesus Christ. So um, Tommy auditioned, played some songs he'd written, acoustic guitar stuff on there, singing. went, is that you? He did. Yeah. I said to the guys, that's the guy. Because he can write songs and sing. Tommy was supposed to be in the reunion. Because of time scheduling things that uh, got screwed up in 88 and there in 89. He got an offer from Kladner, John, <clears throat> to form with Ted Nugent and Jack Blades, a new band. And he called me, said they've offered me this. And I said, I can't tell you not to take it, but aren't we going to get back together again? And he took it. So the three of the other uh, four of us had been talking. We're going to get Tommy. We're going to go. So Tommy goes to damn Yankees and we decide, all right, well, let's see if we can find somebody else. Because Tommy was basically telling us Ted Nugent and Jack Lades are more important to him than the other four mooks. So J.Y. said, I got this tape from this guy, Burtonick. I'm going to come over, come on over. He played me songs on his name. Okay. Yeah, it sounds okay. Uh, you know, I thought, it's okay. you know, it was like that 90s hair band thing in some ways, you know, but it was, it was 1990, <clears throat> you know, the big snare drum and the, the, the chorus shouted vocals and all that stuff. And I thought, okay, uh, gotta have somebody. And, um, you know, Burdnick as a singer was good, but he wasn't like Tommy. He didn't have that voice. So uh, J.Y. loved it. I said, okay, let's do it. And uh, 
And so we made Edge of the Century. And, uh, you know, I brought Glenn in. I was the producer. It says so on the album. Um, and I gave him the first single. I, you know, the record company said, you got to sing Show Me the Way is the first thing. And I said, nah, let's start with a rock song. And we're introducing the new band member, Glenn Burton. And he gets the first video and the first release. Well, nobody, release. nobody cared. Who's Glenn Burton singing? They, they just said, nothing. Show me the way, number three. But I made the decision because I thought, here's the young guy, long hair, rock star. You with me? No. So then we do the tour. It's okay. Not bad. We're a good band. We're still a great band. Uh, then Glenn does his job. He does it well. <clears throat> And it was time to get another record deal. And no one would sign us to a record deal. We just had a gold album and a number three single. But it was the beginning of grunge in 1992. And bands like us, we were old news. Couldn't get a record deal. I thought, Jesus, God almighty. Um, and we got started getting some offers to go around and play, you know, uh, the Monkey's Eyebrow Kentucky uh, uh, State Fair. Eh, what? You know, we're going to play Schmengi's Hot Dog Fest. We got money, right? Go and play. I thought, no. That's not. We're sticks. My God. I'm going to do that stuff. And so I just, I, I backed off of it. And now I didn't make them happy. The other four guys, they don't have jobs. I didn't have one either. I said, but I'm not doing that. I still believe Shaw needed to be in the band. He said, he's, he's damn yanking it. He's damn yanking it. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> my brother-in-law, who just marries my sister-in-law, says, hi, it meets me and says, yeah, I want you to be, I'm the executive producer of Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical. Uh, the 25th, 20th anniversary reunion tour of the guys in the movie with Irene Cara. You want to be Pontius Pilate? I want you to be one. I said, Forbes, Every six months or so, empty your bong water. Would you please? So he pursued me. I had no job. I took my wife and my son. On the road, we went for six months. 280 times I crucified Jesus. He's never forgiven me. <laughs> now, where are you now today with the guys from Sticks? I mean, with Tommy and uh, James, are you? Do you talk to them? Have you run into Tommy since this? Just the he... one time. It's it's well documented by accident. Uh, do I need to tell the story? Look, no. tell your fifteen thousand viewers. Make this there a story. Go. go and share with fifteen thousand of your friends or your enemies. I don't give a shit what your problems are. Listen to this. I got sick. I still suffer. You know what they call now long haulers from the COVID? Guess what? I got some kind of coronavirus. I'm convinced. I didn't know about it. In 1998, <clears throat> we were supposed to be recording a new album. And I went to my, my sister-in-law's funeral in San Diego. My wife and I got terrible sick. I couldn't get better. Couldn't, you see these? I wear these all the time. Not because I, 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 ha I got light sensitivity from this virus. I could not get better. I it was essentially like chronic fatigue. 
I was like, me, you know how, what kind of person I am. A, double A, triple A. <laughs> I, I want to get uh, I was hot, feverish, all these symptoms. I went to the doctor. Doctor, I have these symptoms. Everything's gone wrong with me. I can't smell. I can't taste. He looked at me like this. He went, oh, that's what happened. That's what happened to me. I told you guys, I don't, I, something happened to me. I don't. So I'm sick for about a good nine months. I'm not doing anything. <clears throat> the guys want to record a new album. I said, send me some songs. I heard them. I said, great, let's do it. I'll do the best I can. We start recording an album, Brave New World. And um, to this day, I suffer with light sensitivity. I take my glasses. I don't, my glasses are on indoors all the time, night. My eyes will not, because of the high fever I had, they won't, they don't handle uh, light properly anymore. And so I was really sick. <clears throat> We're making the album. We're two-thirds of the way through. They come to my house for a meeting. February 99, they said, we want to book a tour. I said, I, okay, I'm in. Give me another six months. I just started to realize it's the lights that are doing it to me. I didn't know. So they gave me an ultimatum. Show up on this day for rehearsal. We're replacing you. And they did. That's what they did to me. And then they've spent the last 22 years trying to run down Kilroy was here. And Roboto, as if in 1999 and 2000, what had happened 27 years later, had any bearing on anything. 96 and 97, you saw that, did you see the comeback to us? 96 and 7? Unbelievable. We went right back in there. Tommy's in the band. 10,000 people everywhere. Constantly. I didn't see it. Was like, hey, we're not buying this ticket. You once played Mr. Roboto. I didn't hear that. Okay. So now they're using it as an excuse on the, behind the music to run me down to denigrate me personally and professionally to keep from saying we saw our opportunity we don't think he's ever touring again and here we go and they've, they've told that story for 22 years except for about 3 years ago all the evils of Mr. Roboto were forgiven as they put it into their set as the first encore song explain that to me I'm listening it's called hypocrisy. Oh, I'm glad you said it. I mean, think about that. That's what happened. I defy any. I'll go you anywhere. You want a lie detector test? So they did to me. I'm thinking to myself, oh my god, unbelievable. And the worst part of it is after '96 tour, <clears throat> our plan was to do the night in '97. Visa be the our manager then, Charlie Brusco, still their manager. He said, we're not going to tour in 97. We're going to make your first studio album. I said, yeah. I get a call in November of 96 after the tour. He says this to me. Tommy Shaw has a cash flow problem. I thought, oh, damn. He said, is there any way you can squeeze in 40 dates or 50 dates next year? Because they all knew 
prior to that, I had written a musical based on The Hunchback of Notre Dame that was to receive its world premiere in Nashville in 1997. They knew that. This is before Tommy came back in the band. I've been working on it since 94. You following in this? There's going to be a quiz at the end. I, I'm ready. I'm, I'm taking notes. So, uh, how do I not help a friend? So I worked myself to death in 97. A double live album, because we weren't going to make our studio album. I, we took some tracks and the video off the last show we did. I mixed it with three new songs. And I did, the, I, I did it workshops in Nashville, New York. Na, uh, and, uh, Nashville, New York, where's the other place? Chicago. Casting for this World Premier Musical in September. So we did the shows. I get off the road. It's 1998, January. I get sick because I, I just did too much. Well, I was 50 years old and I did too much. And a year and a half later, I was being replaced. So how do you rebound from that? That's such a big thing. I mean, as, as a performer, how do you how do you come back from that? How do you get back? Because as you said, you know, we're always looking for approval. You know, you had just been basically, you played Pontius Pilate, and you had just been, suffered the same Pontius <laughs> Pilate. I mean, how did, how did you rebound? And now you've had such a successful career since then. What kept you on track? My wife and Tim Orchard, who became my manager in 2000. Um, he was a promoter, big promoter in Chicago, who essentially said, I want to present you after they kicked me out of the band and been on the road for like four months without me. Never paying me a dime for the use of the name Sticks. He says, I want you to play a show in Chicago, 4,000 seat venue, then stand the music of sticks with a 50-piece orchestra. I said, I can't do a 4,000 people by myself. So he'll, he'll sell it out. He sold it out three times. And they became my manager, became friends. We're best friends to this day. He saved my career. Because he's the smartest manager I've ever met in my life. And uh, that and my wife saying, get back up on the stage and show those guys. I don't want to show them. I just want to be in them. I don't be with them. But, you know, I, and I've said in recent years, one last tour, guys. I'll come back and then you rid of me. For the fans. Let's do it one last time. Let's get Mo Larry and Curly and Shemp when he's available. No. And the one who makes that decision is Tommy. He's It's Tommy's band. So he makes the decision. It's regretful in my eyes and sad for the fans. Like you, you'd get your tickets early, but after this interview, you'll be hitting me up or something. Don't even try. <laughs> I need, remember that interview I did for 15,000 people? I said, this is what I've come to, 15,000 people on a podcast? All right, we'll get you some good seats. Then you come in there and you'll say to me, Dennis, you played so much <laughs> I thought it would never end 
No, I, as I said, when I saw you at, and that was in 2014, it blew me away. Now, was it on purpose that your guitarist looks a lot like Tommy Shaw? No. <clears throat> Another lie. The I was other just wondering, I, I noticed it. I was like, oh my God, he looks like Tommy this, Shaw. This, this is like fools on the internet. Fools. Jimmy Leahy, one of the blondes. You can have one, but not two. One of the blondes had been in my band for the prior four years. But the other guitar player had brown hair. Nobody ever said, oh, Dennis. Hey, Bafangu. That's what I say. I said, no. My bass player, he's quitting to go play on in a Broadway pit band of my musical, 101 Dalmatians. I got him the job. So I got to get a bass player. I find a bass player. An African-American guy, Craig Carter from Nashville. Fantastic guy. Now, my son sends me an email. Dennis. He calls me Dennis when it wants to get my attention. <laughs> Look at this. There's this band called The Grand Illusion in L.A. with a guy doing Tommy Shaw. And I looked and I went, what? Nailed it. Nailing it. I thought, oh, my God. I made the decision right then and there. Let me meet the guy. Met him. Loved him. He's a great talent. He walks in. Now they got two blondes. Oh, shut up, you stupid asses. You don't know anything. I'd have hired him. I'd have hired him if he was if he had a shaved head and a bone in his goddamn nose. Sing and play like that? And you're a rock star? You got a place in my band. You follow my point? Yeah. Now, I got a question about your band. Now that we're opening up, you're going to be performing live again. When you perform live now, how much of your set will be from 26 East and 1 and 2? Or, or do you just are you just going to play stick songs? What are you going to do for your fans? Yeah, uh, if I play Volume 1 and 2 in their entirety, I, I, I will be, my next uh, journey will be to the poorhouse. No, will you play anything from those albums? Wake up, you people! You don't give a shit about new music. Play new music. You know what new music is in a classic rock band? It's a pee break. <laughs> Especially old parts like you. So my prostate's got to go pee. Are you? I'd like to. You know what else I like? Spending anything I like on groceries. Because I got dope. I no one's gonna come to that. You know how there would be there'd be pitchforks. Oh no, we volume one and volume two. Whenever the arrogance performers turn to that where they go, I don't wanna play that song no more, it's too popular with my fans. I think they're the reason you even have that arrogance, you <laughs> stupid ass. Oh you stupid asses. You worked your ass off to have a hit record, you got it now you say, Oh, I'm into my art. Fuck you. This is getting violent, isn't it? I love it. <laughs> Look, I'm telling you the truth. That is the biggest load of horseshit. Can you get tired of playing the same song over and over again? Sure. On the other hand, if if you play a few... Okay, have a... I start playing and, and, and 2,000 people cheer. If that is becoming annoying, you've made a bad career choice. 
what is your favorite song to play for you, not for the fans, for you? When you sit there on your set list, what do you? What is your favorite? I don't have one. I, I'll be honest with you. Matters not to me. Don't you understand? Here's who I am. I wrote these songs. You've made them yours. I play what you like. What am I? I, I play what you like. I play them. I know them most of the time. So. There's some I don't like to play because there's difficulty involved. The long note in Sweet Madam Blue, you've heard it. Hey, you know, is this guy ever going to stop singing that note? Uh, I I started that in 1977. I rue the day. I never thought I would be 74 trying to do that. Come Say the Way is the hardest song of the night to sing. Have you ever heard anybody sing it good other than me? Nobody can. It's, It's... it's tailored to me, and even I had trouble with it. So, um, no, it's difficulty. If the song's harder to do, um, I, uh, I, I I don't like it as much. But if you like comes, if you like Renegade more than Come Sail Away, I hope you don't. But if you do, I was the one that turned it into a rock song in the first place. Tommy didn't bring in a rock song. He brought in a three-part harmony acoustic song called Renegade. Did you know that? I did not know that. I said, that's Tommy, Renegade. You know, the jig is up. Imagine the beginning of the song. Oh, mama. And all the voices are in harmony. That was the whole song with the acoustic guitar behind it. Whole song. I said, Tommy, first of all, you should sing this by yourself because you're the Renegade. Or the song should be called The Renegades because we're all singing it. <laughs> and the second thing I said was, what is this like if it's a rock song? We're on the stage of the Rialto Theater in Joliet, Illinois, rehearsing. Pieces of it, he went, uh, a rock song. And he has his Les ball. Never forget, he goes, he started playing that. John and Chuck. John playing the up. And and the rock renegade was born. Did I write that song? No. Did I recognize something about it? I did. Shoot me. Sue me. I was only interested in the best for the band. And so if they love renegade, I'm happy. But I do the set. I'm Dennis DeYoung. They know they like me. That's why they paid that money. So when I see him come say the way, nothing follows it. Nothing. So when I say to the audience, if you hear come say the way, go out in the parking lot and start up your car because Dennis is going home. (laughs) Well, Dennis, I want to thank you. I have one final question for you. What is a question that nobody ever asks you that they that you wish they'd ask. How in God's name did somebody like you stay married to the woman that's so beautiful for 51 years? And my wife would always say, amnesia? What's the thing you yeah, amnesia. That's no, how I stayed married. No, no, <laughs> it's not amnesia. It's, I, say, I say, how do you manage to stay together so long? You got a great line for that. Is it amnesia? Yes. 
found it better the first time. Look, <laughs> have you ever been, anybody you ever interviewed been this honest with you? Um, I, I get, I pull the honesty out of them. But you're, you're you, didn't, like, you didn't do nothing except put a hat on. I've told you everything I had to say. I know. That's what's, that's why, that's why I like interviewing. <laughs> you're, you're the easy guest. I just can throw you softballs and you hit Don't them out of the park. Me. You love the guy that you ask a big question to and they go, oh yeah, blue. <laughs> and then you're going like this, what the fuck? What else have we got here? What other? That's it. Leave me alone. I want... Don't tell your thousand fans, this guy is the biggest asshole I have ever interviewed and you should watch it. That's how you get him to watch. I want to tell you. Oh. I'm here. Go Thank... ahead. <laughs> It was low battery. I, I want to th- I want to thank you for coming on. This is very this is very enjoyable to me. I'm I'm a big Sticks fan, and as I said, I saw that concert, and I was like, oh my god, I'm going to talk to Dennis. And me and my wife loved that show because the El Ray was such a nice place, you know. And it was just everyone was into the show, and you brought the the Roboto head out, and then you kicked ass. So I want to thank you. Now your album. Is is it out yet? Because I know I I listened to it, but I listened to it through your uh, PR person. Is it out? Can people buy it? It comes out June 11th. Where can people buy it? All right. Make sure this gets in. Okay. <clears throat> well, you can go right now to YouTube. It's free and see the first video from the record, Isle of Misanthrope. It is, I say so myself, pretty damn cool. And the second that came out just this week. Wednesday is another video with me and Tom Morello. It's a song called The Last Guitar Hero. And he's playing on it. And that's up there. The album itself comes out June 11th. Okay. Um, And here's how it works. Kids, if you buy these things rather than just listen, then the record company thinks they can go and give whoever the musician is more money to make more albums. That's how it's going to work. So don't do it for me. I swear to God, you already made me well off. Do it for all the young musicians that still need a break. Um, but yeah, Isle of Misanthrope. Have you, you, you haven't seen the video, have you? I've listened to the album. I'm going to go watch the video tonight. Yeah, make sure you, make sure you do it lying down. I wouldn't want you to have a heart attack. Okay, uh, Isle of Misanthrope. Last Guitar Hero, featuring the great Houdini himself, Tom Morello. Well, that's awesome, Dennis. I want to thank you. People, go to his website, uh, follow Dennis, go listen to Sticks, buy his album. He's great. Go see him in concert because he's on a hell of a show. So also go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 850 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my yes. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. That was-